Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. In this episode, we will take a look at the music that some people said was too country for rock and too rock for country. Country rock has very loyal fans, including yours truly, but it has never been a commercial success. In the 70s and into the 80s, that meant it did not sell records in big numbers and country bands had a hard time getting on the radio. Why? Was it the culture around the genres of rock and country that resisted this marriage? Or was it the rigid radio format requirements we shall discuss? But first, thank you so much to all of the new and returning members of the FTR70 community. I appreciate the emails, the voice messages, and of course, the financial support from everyone who helps keep this podcast rolling along. You know, I had the opportunity to attend a podcast conference put on by the women at She Podcasts in October, and I came came away with the confirmation that there are good things happening here, and I am very glad to be behind the mic, and that we shall remain ad-free. Ads work for some podcasts, but I don't think that they would work for this one. So if you want to help pay the bills for this one woman, one mic, one editor, one writer show, you get the idea. You can go to ftr70.com and click on the Patreon link in any of the episodes and just contribute what you can, even if it's just a buck or two per month. If you can't do that, well, You can give a five-star review on your podcast app, which helps other folks find the show. Here is a quote from a country music singer. I can't stand to see the outdated rock and rollers coming in to play country music. That really pisses me off. We have great singers, great country musicians. There's no reason we have to dilute it by letting people in the format that don't have any business being in the format. That is not a quote from 1972 or 1979 or even 1982 or 1989. That is a quote from Clay Walker from 2015. Walker was born in 1969. I'm not sure if this means that we should just relegate this quote to old school thinking or if it exposes a culture war that has yet to resolve. I will say that one of his newest releases, Catching Up With An Old Memory, sounds very rock, even if the lyrics are country. You know that we have expectations for our favorite singers and our bands. Those expectations are usually tied to the music that drew us to them in the first place. And then we, collectively, are not too forgiving if these musicians stray too far from that. Some genres do not permit veering too far away from this elusive idea of authenticity, which for country is music of struggle, almost reveling in it, and for rock is escaping from it. Bruce Springsteen wrote in his autobiography, Born to Run, about his attempts to change course a bit musically and acknowledge that his audience had grown up. This centered on his addition of Patti Schialfa to the E Street Band, and she would, of course, become Bruce's wife in 1991. Bruce wrote of rock music. It's a house of dreams, of illusions, 
of role-playing and artist audience transference. You serve at the behest of your audience's imagination. That's a very personal place. Once you've left fingerprints there, crossing that imagination can have grave consequences. I approached this subject from a different perspective back in episode 14, which discussed progressive country. It was about country singers who injected some rock into their sound. There were similar insults and raised eyebrows thrown the way of Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. What were they trying to be hippies? Today, I want to look at the resistance rock singers who wanted to inject some country into their music based. Carpetbaggers, some people in Nashville would whisper. You remember your Civil War history, right? During Reconstruction, as this country was trying to put itself back together again, there were people from the North who went to the South looking to profit financially from all the chaos, and they were called carpetbaggers. It is also true that many of the 70s singers and bands that were being labeled as country rock did not like the label. There is no question that 70s rock is very fragmented with many different subgenres. At a recent online event that stands in for book tours in the midst of a pandemic, I had the opportunity to ask Ann Wilson of Heart and Bob Spitz, the author of the new Led Zeppelin biography, why they thought that this breaking into subgenres was happening specifically in the 70s. Spitz viewed it as a positive thing and said that rock was becoming more sophisticated and creative. He said rock grows up in the 70s. What Ann Wilson said proves to be very true about country rock specifically in that there is so much musical inbreeding that goes on. Then that's, of course, a shifting of personnel and the influence that you are bound to have on each other, that it's just a big jam, as she put it. Michael Nesmith, who became very famous as a member of the Monkees in the 1960s, was part of one of the first country rock bands after that. They were called the first national band, and they had a minor hit with a song called Joanne. Nesmith said, though, that he thinks it's a waste of time to try to categorize music at all, and he also did not like the country rock label. What then was so wrong with Rick Nelson and his country rock Stone Canyon band performing those country rock songs for the troops in Vietnam? Well, it's not what those guys wanted from Rick Nelson. They wanted his hits. So they booed him and his long hair to the point that Randy Meissner, who would leave the band and go help create something else called the Eagles, left. In October 1971, the fans who paid to get into Madison Square Garden to see this rock and roll spectacular, which was renamed from the rock and roll revival at Nelson's request, paid to see their rock idols play those rock hits. Gary U.S. Bonds, Chuck Berry, the Shirelles, the Coasters, Bobby Rydell, they were all there to relive the 50s for a night, which becomes one of our favorite sports in the 1970s. They wanted Ricky Nelson from the Ozzie and Harriet show of the 50s, not Rick Nelson with boots and bell-bottom jeans and shaggy hair. And they most definitely did not want to hear honky-tonk women or traveling man. So they let him know, and they booed this imposter on the stage. He's not so sure. Well, let me rephrase this. He thinks 
they were booing him. Others who were there said, well, there were some shenanigans going on in the back, and the police got involved, and maybe that was the booing was about. But he believed it was directed at him. So Nelson wrote about that night, and he turned it into a song. Played them all the old songs. Thought that's why they came. No one heard the music. We didn't look the same. I said hello to Mary Lou. She belongs to me. When I sang a song about a honky-tonk, it was time to leave. But it's all right now. I've learned my lesson well. You see, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. I went to a garden party Reminisce with my old friend A chance to share old memories Play songs again When I got to the garden party They all knew my name No one recognized me I didn't look the same But it's alright now I learned my lesson well See you can't please everyone So you got to please yourself People came from miles around Everyone was there Yoko brought a walrus There was magic in the air Over Other lyrics to Garden Party. Someone opened up a closet door and outstepped Johnny B. Good, playing guitar like a ring and a bell and looking like he should. If you gotta play at garden parties, I wish you a lot of luck. But if memories were all I sang, I'd rather drive a truck. In other words, these rock and roll revivals, they're not for me. It's not what I want to do. You know, I do understand why the fans might have been disappointed. But look, this is the type of music that Nelson had been making since the mid-60s. Nobody should have been surprised that he wanted to play his new songs. It is also true that Nelson should have been maybe a little more in tune to what was expected of him at this specific event. Ironically, a decade later, he would be putting on shows that relied on his old hits with their more familiar arrangements. On the bright side, though, his night at the Rock and Roll Spectacular at Madison Square Garden gave him Garden Party, a top 10 hit on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1972. There were more barriers between rock singers and country singers than long hair, though. I think there was something a little deeper than just hair. I think that some of the country singers, and more importantly, their fans, were a little worried that they were being made fun of. They were worried that the rock singers were not sincere about their appreciation for country. Their approach to making the music might have been a little different too, which leads to questions about whether or not they were serious. When J.D. Manis, a country session guitar player, was hired to back up Grand Parsons, and Parsons said, Just play what you feel. J.D. had no idea what to do with that. Just tell me what to play. Manis also said that none of the country rock singers were very good, he didn't think. He thought they just sang like they felt, kind of like the Rolling Stones. Look, Graham Parsons was sincere. He was genuinely interested in country music and music that came before him. The country rock family tree is very complicated. I will not bore you with a detailed listing of every change in band personnel, because there were many. But 
You cannot delve into Country Rock's history without finding Graham Parsons in that family tree. You can understand the questioning of him, though. He was a privileged white kid who lived off the 55000 or whatever it was a year that he got from his trust fund. That was a result of his grandfather's Florida Citrus Empire. He lived a short life, but he never had to worry about money during any minute of it. And that lack of struggle, well, some would argue that the struggle is an essential element of country music. But he was from the South, and he was influenced by many types of music, including gospel. He was also influenced by Elvis's early country-tinged rock, and Ray Charles, specifically uh, the album Country and Western Meets Rhythm and Blues, that was put out in 1965. In fact, Michael Ray Fitzgerald, who recently published a book called Jacksonville and the Roots of Southern Rock, says that Ray Charles and that record, that these were specific influences on what Parsons comes to call cosmic American music. That's what Parsons said that he was making when he was asked, like, what exactly is this music that you're playing? Is it country? Is it soul, rock? What is it? He said it's cosmic American music. Essentially, cosmic American music is like a stew of all types of American music, crossing genre and cultural boundaries. Parsons, no surprise, did not like the term country rock, which he referred to as, and I shall quote, a plastic dry fuck. While a student at Harvard, and I did mention he was privileged, right? Parsons and John News formed what many considered to be one of the earliest country rock bands whether Graham liked the term or not, called the International Submarine Band. Later, he will join the Birds, whose Sweethearts of the Rodeo in 1968 so greatly upset the country music establishment that the Birds were booed off the stage at the Grand Ole Opry. Now, as I said, you need a very big, long chart to track the shifting of band members in country rock, and Parsons was no exception. From the Birds, he and Chris Hillman, also formerly of the Birds, formed the Flying Burrito Brothers. The first album from the Burritos, Gilded Palace of Sin, was not a commercial success. In fact, very few of the country rock albums were. But it surely did get the attention of musicians like, say, Glenn Fry, who Hillman said was a regular in the crowd at the Troubadour in Los Angeles where the Burritos played. You know, the troubadour merits its own episode for how much of a proving ground it was for musical experimentation of the 70s. Country Rock's ground zero was Southern California, and the troubadour was its headquarters. So look for that episode on the troubadour down the road. If you got an invitation to the release party for the Gilded Palace of Sin, you also got a package of hay. It was a publicity stunt, of course, and it was designed to signal, hey, country. But it was tested to see if it might be marijuana at the suggestion of the United States Postal Service. But no, no pot, just hay. But the publicity and the image that it created, Bob Prohl, who was the author of a book on the Gilded Palace of Sin, wrote this. The media buzz, the seizure created, was better than anything the A&M marketing department could have dreamed up. Before anyone had heard of the album, the Burrito Brothers had the exact image A&M wanted. 
psychedelic cowpunks, drug-addled. Now, Chris Hillman and Parsons were roommates when they were writing songs for the Gilded Palace of Sin. Hillman said he woke up one morning with this line in his head, this old town's filled with sin, it'll swallow you in. So he goes up and he wakes up his roommate, Graham Parsons, who came up with the melody for the song. The song, Sin City, feels like it would fit right in with Hotel California. Written in 1969, as the 60s are becoming the 70s, it's about the darker side of Hollywood. This old town is filled with sin. It will swallow you in. This old earthquake's going to leave me in the poorhouse. It seems like this whole town's insane. There's also this verse about Bobby Kennedy, who was assassinated while on a presidential campaign stop in Los Angeles on June 6, 1968. A friend came around, tried to clean up this town, His ideas made some people mad, but he trusted his crowd, so he spoke right out loud, and they lost the best friend they had. You can feel the 70s coming from there, can't you? Uh, In the Billboard ranking of top 200 albums, The Gilded Palace of Sin made it no higher than 164. The Burrito Brothers look great in those classic nudie suits, though. And Graham's suit with its marijuana leaves and poppy flowers, and he's got these naked ladies on the lapel. It's definitely one of a kind. Now, this album's place in rock history is not about album sales. It's about its descendants. It's about Poco and the Eagles and the Rolling Stones, and you could even throw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in there. You can certainly make the case that Graham Parsons' popularity and the credit that he has received for inventing country rock is at least in part based on, I'd say, as much as the death and this bizarre body snatching that followed as on his actual musical output. He died on September 19th, 1973 in true 70s rock star fashion of a drug overdose. His family wanted his body buried in Louisiana. He had a rocky relationship with his family and apparently said when he died that he wanted to be cremated and have his remains scattered in the Joshua Tree Desert in California. 
So Phil Kaufman, his manager, stole his body from the Los Angeles International Airport and, as one does, did a DYI cremation in the desert. It's possible that some of that lore may be contributing to the legend of Graham Parsons. Now, Earl Ball, a session musician who played with J.D. Manis and also toured with Johnny Cash for 20 years, had an interesting theory on what he think helped close the musical and cultural gulf that Graham was trying to bridge. Earl believes that it was the drugs rather than the music that eventually led the country and rock musicians to understand each other. Rockers smoked pot, the country musicians took speed, Um, the fact that drugs were part of their cultures seemed to matter to each other, so, you know, maybe. Maybe the idea that they both took some sort of mind-altering substance, in particular for the country musicians, may have helped lessen some of the suspicion that they had of the rock musicians. Whatever it was, uh, this new sound was attracting a younger audience who liked what they heard. In a book called Southern Music, American Music by Bill C. Malone and David Strickland, the authors pointed out that the fusion of country and rock sounds and the way it helped a younger audience develop an appreciation for country music resulted in, quote, as much as from the experimentation of country-oriented rock musicians as from the innovativeness of country musicians. This, I think, is important to note because, again, it speaks to the sincerity of the rock musicians, which was up for debate if you were a country musician. It was also true that, for some young fans, getting into country music was just another way to rebel against the establishment and give the establishment the middle finger. Wherever you might be on Graham Parsons' greatness as a musician or not, there is no argument about the influence that Graham Parsons had on Emmylou Harris, who to this day still seems pained by Graham's death. She thought that she would be singing with Graham for the rest of her life, Her music is impossible to categorize. It's not exactly purely anything. Or rather, it would be more accurate to say she can sing more than one genre. And her interpretation of whatever it is that she is singing sounds authentic. Gospel, bluegrass, country, country rock. As she puts it, she bleeds outside the lines sometimes. In this way, I think she is living out Graham's vision of cosmic American music. A little of this, a little of that, all with one of the most beautiful voices that you have ever heard. I like what she said about her relationship to country music. I smoked, but I didn't inhale. Now, she started out as a folk singer in 1969. Chris Hillman heard her sing at a club outside of Washington, D.C., and he considered asking her to join the Flying Burrito Brothers, who were now without Graham Parsons. Instead, he suggested that Parsons check out her work because he was looking for someone to help him out on his solo album. I would have loved to have been in the room when they realized the type of musical chemistry that they had. I'm not sure if there has ever been 
forever will be a duet partnership that is as gorgeous as the one between Graham and Emmy Lou. She sang on his GP album in 1973 and his Grievous Angel album in 1974. You might know the Nazareth cover of Love Hurts from 1974, and maybe you even know it from the Everly Brothers version in 1960 or Roy Orbison in 1961, but you do not know Love Hurts until you have heard it from Emmy Lou and Graham. It is altogether heartbreaking and desperate and beautiful and loving and sorrowful. I mean, if you're, I, you know, I, I like the Nazareth version too, but man, that, that is something special there. Love Hurts from 1973. There are many who questioned whether or not Emmylou and Graham had a physical relationship too, but Graham was married. Emmylou was divorced with a child and they just had a very strong emotional and maybe also a spiritual connection. When Graham died, she was understandably distraught. She put her feelings about losing Graham and she worked through her grief over losing him into a song that she called Boulder to Birmingham. The composer of that song, by the way, is Bill Danoff of the Starland Vocal Band. Here are some of the lyrics. I would rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. I would hold my life in his saving grace. I would walk all the way from Boulder to Birmingham if I thought I could see, I could see your face. Well, you really got me this time. And the hardest part is knowing I'll survive. I would rock my
can't. You can just you can just hear it. You can hear that grief and that pain in her voice in that song. That is from Emmy Lou's second solo album, 1975's Pieces of Sky. She said a few years later, that song was very important. Words can be so powerful to help you express something you otherwise can't. I think a young Emmy Lou was just not prepared for a career or a life without Graham. I mean, who amongst us, among us thinks about these things when we're 23 or 24 or 25? Even now, uh, she has said it is hard to believe for her that so many of the people that were in her life and that she loved to hear sing and sing with Waylon Jennings and Towns Van Zant, just to name a couple, that they're gone. I spent more time than a normal person probably should trying to figure out why Pure Prairie League performed at Billboard's International Radio Programming Forum in 1975. The purpose of this event, according to Billboard, was to provide radio programmers, general managers, record industry executives, on-air personalities, and others the opportunity to air, analyze, and discuss the major topics that are affecting or will affect radio programming now and in the immediate future. Also performing at this event in San Francisco was the Grateful Dead, Somewhat of an odd choice, but I get that because of the Bay Area connection. Glenn Campbell and Waylon Jennings. Glenn Campbell, I get. His songs were all over the radio, pop and country in the mid-70s. Waylon Jennings, he was in the midst of the most commercially successful period of his career. So, okay, country radio, get it. But Pure Prairie League? I don't get that at all. And I can only assume that their record label... RCA made them do it because radio really did no favors for country rock in general and not much at all for Pure Prairie League until the end of the 70s when they by that time had jumped on the soft rock train with Let Me Love You Tonight. Vince Gill sang the lead on on that one. Now granted, Craig Fuller, one of the band's co-founders, created some issues because he claimed conscientious objector status with the draft board when he refused to report for the draft for the Vietnam War and was sentenced to six months in prison in Springfield, Missouri in 1973, by the way, the year that the U.S. withdrew its troops. He was then sentenced to two years of service in a, quote, alternative mental hospital. And this was all right after their 1972 album, Bustin' Out!, was released, but then RCA dropped them, no doubt due at least in part to these legal problems that Craig Fuller had brought upon himself. Mike Riley joined the band, and he said, I basically stepped up, I think by default, and grabbed the reins and kept trying to steer the buggy. Craig Fuller did eventually rejoin the band, but he just didn't stay very long. And I think that Pure Prairie League was okay with that. He was more into rock than they collectively wanted to be. So even though Bustin' Out was no longer even in print, college radio stations still played some of the cuts. One of those cuts was a song called Amy. Then country radio started playing Amy, and the top 40 radio stations started playing it, and then RCA signed them back, and then they take that song Amy, which was just just right there doing nothing, on Bustin' Out and re-released it as a single 
and Pure Prairie League had new life. So yeah, Amy certainly had something to do with this country rock band, a band that a West Virginia critic described as an obscure country band, performing at a radio programmer's forum. But it was college radio, not mainstream radio, that made that happen. Many years later, no matter how much the interviewer for the Tennessean newspaper tried to make the song into a story, Craig Fuller pretty much just said, it's just a song. He said it was just words and music that he strung together, an exercise in song craftsmanship. A lot of people, though, uh, seem to have named their daughters after the song. I was not one of them. I was already born. And besides, I was actually named for Amy in uh, the Louisa May Alcott book, Little Women. But my mom did buy me the Bustin' Out album. Whatever you call it, it has all of the elements of country rock. The twang, the harmonies, and a little bit of heartache. on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1975. The next hit for Pure Prairie League was in 1980 with Let Me Love You Tonight. No surprise that Mike Riley also resists that country rock label even today. In June of 2021, he said that the band prefers to think of it as the Midwestern sound. Quote, we grew up in Cincinnati. We had a great jazz scene, a great blues scene, a heavy country scene, and a lot of bluegrass and a lot of R&B. And James Brown was there recording too, so there was also soul music. We had a real diverse background growing up than playing in the clubs and in the bars. We played everything from the Beatles to Lonnie Mack. Plus, Poco had just come out with their first record in 1969, and we individually wore those records out. We were big fans of the Birds and Poco, and basically, that's what we wanted to do. Play rock music with country meanings and country instruments. Poco formed in 1967. Uh, It was created by Richie Furey and Jim Messina of Buffalo Springfield. 
Poco in Spanish means little, which was intentional. It's the little four-piece band. They were Pogo, but they had to change their name to avoid legal conflicts over the cartoon of the same name. I think that Poco's influence on country rock is similar to that of Graham Parsons. The DNA is there, even if they themselves did not achieve the level of fame as this other band that, that's coming up. Hugh Cutler wrote a review of a 1972 Poco concert in a section of the Wilmington, Delaware News Journal that was called Under 30. And he called Poco rock music's answer to Mother Nature's late afternoon sunshine rainbow. He called co-founder Rusty Young a maestro of the pedal steel guitar. He calls the three-part harmonies perfect, and he revels in Paul Cotton's lyrics. But he also said Poco's music, in fact, is right up there with kite-flying days for sending spirits and senses soaring. It's incomprehensible why more followers won't allow themselves to be sent. Huh. Now, Poco had four albums out by that time, the latest being Hoedown. Why weren't more people buying Poco's records? Again, it comes down to knowing how to market a band that does not neatly fit into a radio format. Rusty Young, who played the steel guitar on a Buffalo Springfield song called Kind Woman, said that Kind Woman was really the first Poco recording. That was in 1968. If you go back and find that song on YouTube or Spotify, you can hear the future of country rock there. Rusty went on to say that we had this idea of taking Richie's rock and roll melodies, referring to Richie Furet, and the songs he wrote, and his voice, and the palette to color that would be country instruments. That was country rock. Which is what Pure Prairie League said they wanted to do after listening to Poco. Poco was the house band at the Troubadour, and Rusty said that Robert Hilburn of the LA Times gave them the kiss of death by referring to them as the next big thing. Now, they had very loyal fans, but they were not the next big thing. In fact, their record label was on the verge of dropping them when Timothy Schmidt left to go join the Eagles and their drummer, George Grantham, went to go join the Birds. It was crazy love that saved Poco in 1978 and finally gave them the hit that they never had. Why didn't mainstream radio give them a chance? Well, according to Rusty Young, the rule of thumb was to not release new singles in November because radio stations were getting geared up to play Christmas music. They released Crazy Love anyway, and since it was one of the few new songs, particularly on this this adult contemporary chart that they were so popular on, they kind of had a wide opening lane. It was a bit different for their next hit, Heart of the Night, which leans much more into soft rock. I think that sax in the background of Heart of the Night makes it more slick, but Crazy Love is still pure country rock. Listen to these harmonies. Tonight I'm gonna break away Just to wait and see I'll never be imprisoned by A faded memory Just when I think I'm old 
Nice. That one takes me back. Uh, Crazy Love, released in November 1978. That's on the Legend album. And it was number one on the Billboard Adult Contemporary charts for seven weeks. It made it to number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100, making it the very first top 40 hit for Poco. Heart of the Night made it to number 20 on the Hot 100 a year later. So, of course, there was a country rock band that was very commercially successful. They achieved a lot of commercial success, meaning a lot of money and a lot of airplay. Chris Hillman said that the Flying Burrito Brothers handed the ball off to the Eagles and they ran it in for 10 touchdowns. Graham Parsons said the Eagles had too much sugar. There is little doubt that the Eagles were the most successful of the country rock bands, even when they were no longer country rock. Maybe even especially when they were no longer country rock. Don Henley implied in an interview with Rolling Stone in 1974 that they wanted to get out from under that country rock label. He said, we like to be a nice little country rock band from Los Angeles about half the time. We wanted to get away from the ballad syndrome with one of these nights. With Don Felder in the band now, we can really rock. He made us nastier, and he did a great guitar solo on that single. Now, much has been written about how pieces of what become the Eagles were Linda Ronstadt's backup band, and that's true. It's also true that the Eagles may have never been without Kenny Rogers. In 1968, Kenny Rogers in the first edition, who had a hit with I Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In, were on tour in passing through Texas, a guy in Henley's band walked up to Kenny and said, hey, we're, we're playing at a club later and would love it if you would drop by. He did. He said, hey, I like your sound, but my band is on the road right now. I'll call you later. And he did. Kenny called them in 1969 and said, hey, it's time to come out to California. Glenn Fry said that the Eagles borrowed a bit from the Burrito Brothers and a bit from Poco. He said this in 1980. Poco was a good band vocally, but they didn't have much toughness. The Burrito Brothers had the toughness, but they weren't that good a band vocally. So we kind of wanted to combine both of those elements. I personally find it a little ironic that Glenn Fry was giving this interview from the back of a limousine, but I digress. Fry went on to say that one of the concerns that they had with entering this country rock fray was that the records from those bands did not sound good. They were poorly produced. So they turned to British producer Glenn Johns, looking for an edgier sound. It was Johns who produced The Eagles and Desperado. The Eagles had their first hit, Take It Easy, which was co-written by Glenn Fry and Jackson Brown. It was a critical success. It was a commercial success. Desperado was not. 
And there was probably nobody as displeased as the president of Atlantic Records, Jerry Greenberg, who called Desperado a fucking cowboy album. Well, it sure looked like one, uh, with the band all decked out in Western gear and guns and that sort of thing. Fifty years later, you know, we have the benefit of the of the doubt. No, we have the benefit of hindsight in knowing that Desperado becomes an Eagles signature song. In 1972, though, the jury was definitely out. These records were still not exactly what they were looking for. They were looking for someone to help them sound like a rock band. So while they were were recording on the border, they hired a different producer. They also hired Don Felder, and he became the fifth eagle because he could give them what Bernie Ledden could not. Bernie Ledden, formerly formerly of the Flying Burrito Brothers, he was too acoustic, too country. By the way, Bernie had a song called My Man that was specifically for Graham Parsons. So what is the right formula of rock to country for country rock? Whatever it was, the Eagles found it. The Eagles had fine-tuned this whole machine. They didn't take long to figure out what was missing, and they knew what to leave out. Don Henley said that the recording of one of these nights was the band's satanic country rock period. He said this, Because it was a dark time, both politically and musically in America, there was turmoil in Washington, and disco music was starting to take off. We thought, well, how can we write something with that flavor, with that kind of beat, and still have the dangerous guitars? We wanted to capture the spirit of the times. So, perched up there, on top of that hill, almost all night, every night, we had a big phantasmagorical scene, which included songwriting and uh, research. Lots of research. Yeah, I think we know what he meant by research. Robert Hilburn wrote in, in his review of one of these nights in 1975, that Lion Eyes reminded him of Sin City by the Flying Burrito Brothers. They are both songs in their own ways about materialism. City girls just seem to find out early how to open doors with just a smile. A rich old man, and she won't have to worry. She'll dress up all in lace, go in style. Late at night, a big old house gets lonely. I guess every form of refuge has its price. And it breaks her heart to think her love is only given to a man with hands as cold as ice. He also said this about Glenn Fry's vocals. He said that they reflect a combined sense of warning about what someone is doing, yet compassion for the situation as well as anyone since the late Graham Parsons when he was working with the Flying Burrito Brothers. This is a bit of Lion Eyes. Sir, I'm falling late. 
it's lonely I guess every form of refuge has its price And it breaks her heart to think her love is only Given to a man with hands as cold as ice So she tells him she must go out for the evening To comfort an old friend who's feeling down But he knows where she's going and she's leaving She is headed for the cheating side Lion Eyes went to number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and number eight on the country chart. And that would be about it for country crossovers for them. One of these nights was followed up by not just their defining album, but maybe the defining album for the whole decade, Hotel California at the end of 1976. Uh, Three years ago or so, I went to a concert with a tribute band that goes around the country and performs entire albums and they did the entire Hotel California album and everybody there knew every word of every song. Uh, Replacing Bernie Ledden with Joe Walsh kind of completes the transformation to rock band for the Eagles and after Hotel California Don Henley said that they were finally to escape the quote noose from Desperado. Larry Goshorn of Pure Prairie League said in the summer of 1975, about a year before Hotel California's release, he said when asked about fame, you know, we want it all, like gold albums, a European tour, lots of movies. We'd be stupid to say we're in it for another reason other than to expand our wallets. Otherwise, you can sit in your living room and please 30 people a night for 60 years and eventually cover the same ground. You are in the business, except we do want our music to be heard. A lot of younger people are picking up on our music now because of the single Amy, but it's the kind of music that can appeal to anybody. So much irony, I would say, this is me talking now, in that because the Eagles will have it all, and be very disillusioned by it. But no artist really wants to be starving. Rusty Young said the difference between picking up the pieces by Poco and what the Eagles did is that the Eagles could be played on AM and country radio, and Poco could not. They made commercial music, and we never did. Yeah, witchy woman and peaceable, easy feeling and take it easy were AM gold. I would argue they were still good songs too. And Poco, they made good, they made great songs. They were just harder to market. Like Paul Cotton said, the Eagles figured out what they had to leave out. And it seems like what they had to leave out was probably the country. Many country music musicians in the 70s and in the 80s said that rock nearly killed country. It actually seems to me like it may have been the other way around, that rock saved country, or at the very least, it pushed country forward. 
the country of the 90s, that Garth Brooks brand of country, is essentially country rock. And that's okay. I mean, really, what is this authenticity that we pursue? I'm going to end with something that Emmy Lou Harris said in 2006. I'm going to admit that I was first introduced to her by her appearances on David Letterman's late night talk, late night talk shows. She was not on any radio station that I ever listened to. She said, I read somewhere that every generation has to reinvent itself poetically and probably musically, but we have to find our own authenticity. Absorbing the old music and spitting it out ourselves, that's an authentic way of reinventing oneself because you're going to add something to it that's coming from your own experience. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. All of my sources are on ftr70.com. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider being a patron. Or hey, just share the word with someone. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.